you're an early stage Web3 founder, apply to our award-winning accelerator program, Basecamp at outlierventures.io slash Basecamp. We write your first $50,000 check and give you access to 200 mentors, including many of the leading Web3 founders, and a network of 1,000 of the world's leading investors and exchanges. We've helped over 30 startups from 15 countries from all around the world, raise $130 million in growth funding, and can help you fast-track product market fit and, where relevant, the launch of your token economy. So today I'm really happy to welcome Brian Kerr, co-founder of Carver. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Happy to be here. So we describe Carver as a DeFi hub for cross-chain dApps, and we'll obviously unpack that a little bit later. The reason why I've got you on the show, there are several. Uh, Obviously, DeFi is hot. DeFi UX, even hotter. How do we make all this good stuff usable, usable uh, for not just entire, you know, entirely newbies into the crypto space, but for crypto first, I guess. And given it's, it's still a very relatively small percentage of the global crypto population that's even using this stuff. Some high-level stats just going on the website recently. So we're at the beginning of December 2020. Total asset value is 52.5 million USD made up of Binance Coin, Binance USD, Bitcoin, XRP. I'm sure that number has you know, gone up or down probably even within the hour, hopefully up. Total value borrowed, uh, 28 million, just under 29 million in USDX. $3 million worth of total rewards distributed. Um, and you kind of reference uh, community-built apps a lot. And so it's going to be interesting to understand, you know, what you mean by that. And I guess as a founder, as a founder in Web3, a founder of something like a DeFi hub, like how much of it do you do centrally as a team and, and how involved are is the wider community and who does that extend to? And then almost like a bonus reason, and we'll see if we have time to get into it, you uh, are, were a big gamer working in esports. And I definitely want to understand the correlation between gaming, crypto, DeFi, you know, could gaming become a gateway into crypto and then subsequently DeFi? So hopefully all of those things are stuff that you you want to talk about. Yeah, there's a lot to to unpack there. Um, Maybe before we get started, because you mentioned kind of the stats and community apps, the other one I'll call out is the, the first application that launched on Kava called Hard Protocol. You can visit it at hard.kava.io, uh, but it's a money market for cross-chain assets, and there's currently $38 million uh, in that application as well, and that is a lending and borrowing market for digital assets, and there's assets like USDX, the, the native stablecoin on Kava. Uh, of course, Kava's token can be lent and, and borrowed there as well, uh, as well as all the other assets you mentioned. Very cool. So I'm, I'm pretty pleased with where that's gotten because we've only launched it about a month ago. Um, so the, the traction's been been really nice and uh, I expect it to grow a lot from here. Fantastic. And look, you know, overall, some, some great numbers there. So maybe by way of origin story, to give a bit of context, um, I can see early on 2012 to 14, you're working uh, within marketing, marketing agencies, presumably with a, a digital bent. And then there was this um, period of 
involvement in the gaming industry from similar period 214 to 216 in a, in a mixture of different things, right? So from kind of hardware, from what I could see, um, all the way through to, well, I guess that's also hardware in an esports context. Um, so w w was that just business for you or were you like a hardcore gamer yourself? I grew up playing a lot of competitive games uh, from the early days of, of Counter-Strike and StarCraft and kind of anything I could play online in the early days of the internet and compete with someone on, I loved. And uh, it was in no way a reality for me earlier in my life to, to think I could ever make that into my job. You know, I thought I was going to be an engineer and do other, um, you know, the, the, the normal white collar activities. Uh, and it was actually through the, the marketing agency that I was working with called Kenwood. Uh, and they, they worked with a bunch of global brands, uh, many of them gaming. So one of uh, my clients was NVIDIA and we helped them with a lot of their uh, larger gaming focused launches. It was through that avenue that I got introduced actually at a conference to one of the leading esports stars uh, named Patrick Sachermann, uh, who was one of the early members of Fnatic. And they just really needed help at that time getting any type of business. Esports were, esports organizations were like mom and pop shops that had no revenue. It was literally a passion that people loved playing games and they loved to compete and there wasn't good prize money. There wasn't a lot of you know advertisers in the space. And because I was at a marketing agency dealing with kind of the very few uh, companies that could actually sponsor gaming because they were endemic brands like NVIDIA, uh, I said, you know, hey, I'll help you guys out. I'm talking to the CMOs of these large orgs that might have some budget for you. And then you can use that money and send your teams to compete around the world and you know, I, I just did it out of like a, a love and a passion. And, and that's kind of how I got started getting involved in, in gaming and, uh, and on the esports side of things. And what was really magical was over a short, I would say, three year span, uh, esports just took off largely because of the advent of Twitch uh, becoming a, the, the live streaming platform for gamers where people could watch them play. Nobody knew that was even a marketplace, but what that did was it made this really hard to reach demographic of 20 to, well, let's say it's 15 to 25 year olds um, that don't like watching TV and they're very resistant to advertising. Uh, now they're watching these live streams and you can segment them by their interests and what games they play. And you kind of can put them together as a package for advertisers and that kind of the, the, the growth of Twitch bringing in marketing dollars into that was followed by a bunch of family office money. Um, and kind of in that wave, I'm, I also decided to make the jump, kind of seeing the, the writing on the wall that esports was going to really take off. And I, I left the, the marketing agency I was at, joined, um, well, it, it was Patrick, Sam, and, and Sam's mom, uh, running the company. And it was a company where people really weren't even paid salaries at that time. So I, you know, I use the words company loosely. Um, and it kind of went from a three person team in the office in Shoreditch in, in London. Uh, and that grew kind of over that three year span. And well, now fast forward to today, it's a $175 million company and one of the largest esports organizations in the world. So I, I think it's needless to say, I, I watched, uh, a hurricane of activity happened in that space.
um, it was very, very interesting and very informative as a founder. Wow. And yeah, I, so I saw, you know, you were CEO of Funk Inc. And then that was acquired by Fanatic. Fanatic was the company you were just talking about now, right? With the, well, this was a, a, a separate entity. Yeah. And, and, and my LinkedIn's slightly confusing because I was at Fanatic first, um, working with them and, and helping them kind of turn into a real business. And then uh, as part of that, one of the conditions I had of, of leaving my marketing agency job was I didn't want to just go and work with a bunch of teenagers who are running around traveling and, and competing in games. I thought that there was a huge business opportunity in the, in the gaming sector coming from like my, my marketing uh, background, working with brands and how to position them. And what I saw was there was a huge opportunity for what I called like a Beats by Dre play, but for gamers and gaming gear. So using the professionals, the influencers of the space, have them design things that they want to use and then market it authentically. Uh, and it was that as well as an energy drink brand. Uh, I had those two concepts coming into the space. And I said, I want to you know, help you create Fanatic and turn into a real business 50% of the time. But I also want to spend the other 50% of my time uh, trying to build a, a very different business, uh, either hardware or this you know, energy drink company and let's turn that into a real company that has sales around the world that isn't reliant on just a handful of well at least at that time what was like 10 advertisers or 10 uh companies that would sponsor esports and gaming um and what ultimately happened there was i didn't do the esports gaming drink and i focused all my time on hardware and the me joining funk which is on my my LinkedIn was actually part of an acquisition uh, where Fanatic was going to acquire Funk. I had to go in, really learn the business. Uh, I had to, you know, of course, orchestrate the deal, but you know, I had to learn the business, how distributors work, how to manufacture things in China, how the industrial design and everything works within gaming hardware. And then once I got a good feel for that business, I integrated into the overall like Fanatic holding company. Uh, and we rebranded it and called it Fanatic Gear. Wow. And so you, you exited then, as I said, and, and um, that kind of the, the, the role around Fanatic and stuff ended around 2016. Um, 2017, you founded Carver, but I can see like in between then, I don't know if this was in parallel to Carver or prior to it, but you're an advisor to at least two projects. I could see listed Snowball and DMarket. And I can see... Um, an obvious link with DMarket, right? This is blockchain-based uh, decentralized digital asset marketplace um, for publishers to create pur purchasable inventory, including um, skins, you know, gaming items, etc. Was that was that prior to, to Carver, or tell us how you you went from Fanatic into into Carver? You you uh, you're, you're sniffing the trail, and that, that's exactly right. DMarket was kind of my first foray because sort of, sort of I was there leading uh, Fnatic, which was the largest esports team in, in Europe. And actually, you know, of course, I'm good friends with everyone else that was running the other large esports uh, teams in other jurisdictions. And Navi, Natus Vinceri, was run by this guy named Alex, uh, which, and he was doing a killer job in, in sort of the, the Russian-speaking markets. With his his esports organization, he actually was one of the leaders in terms of fundraising. He raised about 100 million from Alisher Usmanov, uh, 
uh, uh, he was sort of one of the first movers to kind of grow his company to a very large size. And he was in San Francisco where, where I was living at the time. And it was for a, a crypto conference. And he said, Hey, Brian, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about doing these things. I want you to meet my, my co-founder Vlad. And they talked to me and, and this was basically NFTs and gaming in blockchain before, before it was cool. And they, they pitched me the idea of DMarket and it just made so much sense to me, but that was really one of my first deep uh, engagements within crypto. And I had no blockchain experience whatsoever at that time. I just really wanted to help them take their product to market and make sure that they were positioning their, their selves for success. And, you know, they, they actually did a great job getting out the gates and in 2017 and raising money when people should have been raising money in the hot market. And they were able to raise about $20 million um, with not much more at that time than a PowerPoint presentation and uh, a nice website. Um, but now the, you know, the product has developed quite a bit further and they've actually sort of um, been finding different product market fit. And I, I know Vlad and, and the whole team there has now since moved to Santa Monica. They, they were in Ukraine. Um, and $20 million, by the way, is a huge amount for, for someone who's living in Ukraine with the team in Ukraine. Uh, and now they, they're going on to raise subsequent venture rounds, um, doing very interesting things with their company. So that, that was, you know, my, my first chance, but I actually got to learn a lot in that advisory role as well. I got to help them with marketing and positioning, but I got to learn all these things about sort of what's happening in the crypto space. Um, and and yeah, I'm very thankful for that. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's interesting, you know, the role of fortune in a founder's evolution and serendipity. So you co-founded Carver Labs in 2017. So that would imply somebody else was involved in, in that decision. Um, so how did it happen? How did you go from, from D market, presumably seeing the the value of crypto generally to Carver, which is at least now, you know, a, a DeFi project. 2017 was very early for, 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 for DeFi or DeFi related projects. Yeah. So, so just to connect all the dots, um, at the end of 2016, I officially stepped down as CEO uh, over at Fnatic. And the reason was because I'm a, I'm a builder. I like creating things that didn't exist before. And the company grew to over 100 people. Uh, so it was just a very different uh, beast at that point. And I, and I was, I'm, I'm just not the type of person who likes to manage other people and uh, you know squeeze the most out of their time. I like to build things that just didn't exist before that I want or I feel the world needs. And Fnatic was definitely in a different place at that point. So I said, okay, what's the next thing I can do? I, that was my first founder experience, but it, it was very, uh, it was a traumatic, not traumatic, dramatic evolution for me doing kind of learning all the things of a hardware business, learning the wild, wild west of esports. I never held an executive role prior to that. Uh, so there was just so much, so many different muscles I was able to flex in that journey. And I saw many, many other founders that the people I liked, but they were very, they were struggling to get their businesses off the ground in the gaming sector. So I actually got some successful entrepreneurs together, 
actually raised a, a decent amount of money from them. And I was starting a, a seed fund for esports and gaming specific uh, companies. And I thought that's what was going to be the next phase of my life. I was going to help other entrepreneurs do what I had done uh, over there. And hopefully I can make their journey slightly less painful than mine. But kind of push comes to shove after the market. And uh, I just got very obsessive with blockchain. The technology fascinated me. And I'm a very obsessive person just generally when it comes to uh, knowledge and particular passions, tennis being another one and chess being another one. Uh, I got very obsessive about blockchain. I kind of stopped everything that I was doing and I knew I needed to commit the next five years. I just had this feeling the next, at least the next five years of my life entirely to blockchain. And I gave all the, the LPs their money back, uh, shut down the fund. I actually had a business partner there and he was sort of very disheartened that I made this decision, but he was understanding. So I, I, I thank him for that. And after that, I just tried to network with as many people high up in crypto at that time as I could. So uh, if I have one superpower, it's getting in front of people. And I think within the first few weeks of me making this decision, I was able to sit down with like Joseph Lubin over at Consensus. Uh, I was able to speak to kind of the, the leaders over at Ripple. And I really just kind of networked my butt off and tried to learn from the people that knew the most in the space at the time. Um, and you know, you're going to laugh, but as a typical, you know, founder story, I didn't actually have a great view on the market at that time. And so when we made Kava, it was actually as like a software development and research company, uh, to work on payments and it was cross chain payments. Uh, however, turned out crypto payments didn't take off at all from 2017 to 2019. And they still really haven't taken off. Um, to any large degree, the, the volumes there are still very low to support any type of business. Um, so after struggling to raise money over, everyone was raising $20 million there, $30 million here. I couldn't even get a million dollars for almost two years because my view of the world didn't quite match up with investors. And I don't think that necessarily meant that I was wrong. I just think that what the market of crypto investors wanted didn't match necessarily how I saw the world. And uh, we had to pivot because I, like, I put in a bunch of money and my, my co-founder put in a bunch of money and we were paying people salaries, uh, which I know isn't the, the start of every you know, company where people don't have that luxury to sort of bootstrap on your own. But thankfully, we were able to do that for a good amount of time. But after two years of that, it was, uh, we had to kind of come to terms and come to grips with things say, all right, this isn't working. The market doesn't want what we're building. And it's probably still not going to want what we're building at least for another two years. So let's look at what the market wants. And at that time, at, at the sort of start of 2019, it was just very clear to us after seeing the success of Maker um, being one of the only dApps that had real usage, that DeFi was the thing that the world really wanted. And it's because it allows traders to speculate better. And that's definitely what's happening in crypto is there's just a lot of traders, a lot of financial markets, a lot of speculators. So if you build products for them, they're going to get used. And we took our knowledge that we built up in that time of researching and developing. And we had worked with Ripple and MakerDAO and a bunch of others on kind of non-custodial uh, cross-chain solutions. And we took that expertise and we said, okay, well, let's make 
now a platform that can use what we've learned working across different blockchains and apply that into like a, a DeFi uh, solution. And that's really sort of how the birth of the Kava blockchain or the Kava DeFi hub got started. We said, if you know people want to do this with their, their Ethereum used as collateral to get a loan and die on Maker, people definitely want to do that with Bitcoin and they definitely want to do that with XRP and all the other assets that don't live on the Ethereum ecosystem. Um, and you know what, sure enough, within one week of announcing uh, our, this new Kava blockchain, investors lined up before we even decided to fundraise. They, they lined up, emailed me, and like fought to just get in front of me. And they threw five million bucks at us within two weeks, and we were off to the races, and we haven't looked back since. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's really great to hear because you know, as an accelerator, we work with over 30 startups a year. And the easiest way I can describe it is sometimes as an entrepreneur, it feels like you're swimming upstream and sometimes it feels like you're swimming downstream. And like, un unless you've experienced both, it's, it's, very, it's very difficult to, to know the difference, right? Are you swimming against the tide or is this just how it feels to be an entrepreneur? You know, and, and um, I think it's only, only when you're lucky enough to kind of um, go downstream do you do you really appreciate what it feels like to get fit so um, I'm really glad that you managed to to make it through that journey um, and when we were talking off air uh, before we came on you know I, I always ask a founder and I try to do the intro is is this the correct description because startups pivot they change especially language they change language a lot um, and uh, obviously, at this top end, we said the DeFi hub for dApps. Um, but you said even then there was some kind of evolution. I don't know if you would class it as a pivot or uh, as, as an evolution of the offering from um, what was uh, kind of, uh, how did I describe it previously? Multi-chain DeFi lending platform um, with stable coin loans and uh, chaining Oracle data. Was was that just because some of the, the, the technical components are different or was it something more substantial in the evolution of the offering? So something that I think is really important for everyone to uh, always have as a sort of context when they talk about a product is there's the actuality of what the product is and then how you talk about it to the rest of the world. Um, a great example of this is sort of the, the Amazon. Uh, it was a bookstore company. It was online bookstore first, but that was just the tip of the iceberg. And there was so much underneath it that was part of the grander business plan and strategy. And similar here, uh, or at least actually first, let me, let me just clarify. And, and with that sort of grander strategy, like you show the tip of the iceberg to the world and that's your positioning for a specific point in time. But then everything that you're working on underneath, when it finally comes up out of the water, that's when you slightly tweak your positioning or you slightly change your target market or you change the narrative. You're not changing the product that you're building or how you're functioning necessarily, but what you're doing is you're emphasizing different parts of it to the world uh, differently. And, and that's exactly how we started with Kava. When we first announced what we were doing, it was, MakerDAO, but for BTC. It was just a very straight, tweetable thing. Um, and importantly, the price was very cheap compared to MakerDAO as a comparable. So investors really wanted that. It was just a like a 
very quick, no brainer, no real explanation needed. Um, which I also learned in my journey is don't explain things. That's immediately when people don't want to give you money. <laughs> when you can say something in a tweet and they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense, of course. Then it's just your job not to mess up the, the interaction. They're, they've already you know, decided they, they want it. Um, but we did that really well when we created this Kava blockchain product. We just distilled it down. We didn't say it's going to be the DeFi hub for everything. If not, we didn't talk about all the new apps that are going to be built on top. We just said, MakerDAO for BTC, it's built on the Cosmos SDK. It's going to interoperate with a bunch of other chains and use them as collateral. It was a, a very quick and succinct story that people could grok and, and understand. Um, but that was our tip of the iceberg at that moment. What we had under the hood was, well, we worked across oh, 20 different blockchains using different technologies. We, we understood the, the trade-offs blockchains have to make when they focus on privacy, they use proof of work, they use proof of stake, they use proof of authority. We, we understood that deeply because of our kind of, you can call it wasted time of two years. Um, so when we made or, or designed the, the Kava blockchain, we saw all the issues that were looming with Ethereum, whether it's scaling, gas fees, Oracle's not able to post prices, uh, a, a like number of attack vectors from flash loans and everything else. It was very obvious to us. It wasn't obvious to the world, but it was obvious to us because we had got in there and we built payment channels for DAI and we did all these like cross-chain stuff trying to work with different blockchains. And so when we designed Kava, we, we kind of had this all in mind. So the product itself, the blockchain itself is really the same as what we started with. But we're, now we're, we're finally just showing like, hey, it's not just MakerDAO for BTC. It's actually a bunch of infrastructure that we've been building over the past year. It's taken us millions of dollars and you know almost a year of our lives to build. But now that's all here, we have bridges to other blockchains. We have Oracle infrastructure. We have a very secure, robust validator set, one of the best in the world. And anyone who builds an application now can build it and they get all that stuff for free. Uh, so anybody can kind of build and deploy a cross-chain application without needing to build all that ground, that, all that foundation that we've spent the time to do. Um, and that's what we're showing to the world right now is, hey, look, Kava is really a DeFi hub. It's meant to enable a new world of cross-chain applications and not just in the IBC uh, kind of Web3 interoperable sense. It's like we've done a lot of the hard work to, to build bridges to kind of like the fundamental blockchains that nobody else has. So. You know, I, I think it's a, a service for the world. And we think that what Kava has done in terms of the trade-offs that we've made, every blockchain has to make trade-offs, is that we've pulled all the levers. So we will be the strongest at providing security, reliability, and quality in terms of DeFi applications or financial services and applications. Uh, and I guess we'll, t we'll get into a little bit about what applications, and I guess a distinction between the applications that you build and perhaps this reference to community applications. But like before we go into that, I just want to ask you a, um, a slightly higher level question, which is, you know, you're sat in the US, um, you are building, enabling things in DeFi. How do you, how do you navigate that? Because obviously the US is 
probably one of the more challenging environments to be a DeFi entrepreneur, a DeFi innovator. Sure. I mean, you, we can say that as a general statement, but at the same time, it's like, where's Compound? Well, they're sitting in San Francisco. Whereas, uh, you know, Coinbase and the regulated exchanges, many of them are, are in the US. I think that there are extra burdens that you just inherit with uh, being a, a US citizen outside of just globally taxed, no matter where you go, you have to pay the US government lots of money. You also have to deal with SEC and, and everything else. And in 2017, it was much harder to deal with and navigate. We ended up working with the most uh, prominent and expensive law firm in the world on our first uh, token sale, wasted lots of money and they weren't even that helpful. Where now people just sort of copy paste uh, a token sale agreement and use that and it's, it's considered kosher and fine. Um, so, you know, th there's a lot of different kind of learnings that have happened over the years, but our approach is we work with the best firms that lead the space uh, in terms of law firms, accounting firms, and um, we make sure that everything that we do is not going to get us thrown in jail or even raise really a strong eyebrow. We want to be seen as kind of the best intentioned actor, both in our actions, as well as in terms of like, we hire the best experts that we can and work with them, regardless if their answers are right or wrong. Our intentions as, as a kind of people is to just take the best approach that, that we can. And what that ends up resulting in is just really large legal bills and other things um, that, you know, if you're not in crypto, you definitely couldn't afford those. But thankfully, you know, there's a lot of a lot of money and, and things are well funded here. So a lot of that can just go right over into the, the law firm's hands. And we actually work with specialist law firms. Uh, we have must, we have about five on our roster for different things. Uh, we have one for tax planning. We have one for just token issuance. We have one for uh, some of the regulations around our our uh, different jurisdictions. So we operate in the US and Cayman and we have some uh, uh, overseas offices now that we have to take into consideration. But um, yeah, generally we, we just try to be as buttoned up as we can, knowing that we live and swim in the DeFi landscape, which is inherently a gray zone uh, that our business is in. So we, we just have to kind of be as good as we can everywhere else. And, you know, if, if the world or if the U.S. says, sorry, I don't like DeFi anymore, and they do everything in their power to stop it, you know, there's not a lot that we can do in that, that situation. Um, but I don't think they will. I, I think it's just going to slowly become more of a clear framework uh, or like a, a frame that as a company operator, you can operate within and meet all their requirements. And unfortunately, that usually means you're spending money on compliance and legal and other things to do that. But, you know, if you, you know all the rules of the game and you have money, you should be able to play it uh, and, and, you know, evaluate. Does it make sense to, to do that? Is that a positive expected value for your company? Yes or no. Um, and, you know, some some companies have just chosen not to operate in the U.S. at all, like exchanges, because it's just too costly. Um, anyway, my, my final note on just your question is that DeFi, at least from my conception and my understanding, is that. 90% of it's actually happening in Asia. So when I think about our user base, I think much more about our Korean and our Chinese communities, um, the folks in Hong Kong and Singapore, 
they are the primary users of what we're building. And we should optimize most of our business around that. Whereas the U.S. is less than 15%. I would say maximum 20% at a given point in time. Um, it's probably more realistically around 10% uh, in, in terms of DeFi users. And people often, I think, overestimate how much impact the U.S. has uh, when it comes to the user base of, of crypto. For us, we're, we just try to be as data-oriented as we can, and, and we know all of our users are in China and, and overseas and, and the other parts of Asia. So we, we just optimize for that uh, wherever we can. Yeah, and look, you know, you, you, uh, you seem very calm. So, uh, you know, you, you must have comfort uh, that you're navigating it well and you're still here, right? You're not in an orange jumpsuit. But <laughs> I, I, think, I think it's promising. No, no, no bag over my head <laughs> yeah. yet. Yeah, and I think it's, it's, it's promising to hear people with, with that attitude innovating in the U.S. As you say, it's not just you guys, but on the whole, um, certainly outside of the U.S. and large part inside it is, is perceived um, slightly differently. So let's get into Carla. Let's get into the application market. I would love to do that, but I want to share one story first because I think it's really relevant. Um, there is the, a point I would like to make is that no matter what roadblocks are there, regulatory, financial, whatever, there is always a way. And there is always something that can be done, people to be contacted, rules that could be bent. There's always something where you can find a path to your goal. And I learned that the hard way. Uh, when I was in university, I had this idea uh, for secondary, uh, a secondary market for equity. And I put together a plan. I shared it with my professor at the time. And he looked at it and, and he was sort of a big shot who had worked at Microsoft and had his own startup and did all these other things. So I like really respected his opinion. And he said, oh, no, the regulation, you'll never be able to do that. You, there, there's no way you can kind of open up a secondary market to, to everyone. Um, but then, you know what? So, so anyway, I packaged up that idea, threw it away and said, you know, okay, that's probably not a good idea. I got to move on and try to find my next business idea. And, but two years later, this company called Shares Post came out and they've been doing wonderful. They, they are, you know, you can buy Facebook equity, you can buy a bunch of stuff before it ever went public. And that company is doing great. And now there's a bunch of Me Too companies copying it. And it's because they were able to see past the current regulation, see what could be in the future, and then started working towards that. And I think far too often people just kind of do what I did, hear a no from someone, whether it's an investor, or a close friend or, or whatever, and not have enough conviction themselves, pack it up and throw it away. Um, where kind of the world is just full of possibilities and you can do whatever you want. And if you have a good idea, it is a good idea and it can't exist in the world if you work hard enough. So just uh, one, of, one of the learnings I've had. Yeah, and look, I think never ask an expert for an opinion on the future. Um, you know, they, they, they know too much about the past. And, and equally, I think this is where it helps sometimes being a younger entrepreneur is that, um, you, you you find ways to do the impossible. So, but let's get into Carver. So, you, you know, you mentioned um, you've got all these applications. You can, there's this reference to community applications. So how much of these are you building vertically 
and you know, in-house and, and how much of them are, I'm guessing, this community application component? Yeah, so, so the developers of the Kava protocol to date have largely been Kava Labs. So uh, in terms of the Kava blockchain, how it's designed, the modules that exist within it, uh, that's been largely like a, we've led that initiative. And we led with the first application as well, hard, to showcase kind of the capabilities and to show people, you know, show other developers, hey, look, this is all here. It's super easy. Took very little code to do since we built all the hard stuff. Uh, now you can do all this on, on Kava very quickly and deploy apps uh, that are much higher quality apps than what you could do on, say, Ethereum um, in, in a much shorter period of time. And kind of going forward, many more uh, third-party developers will, will get involved and um, be pushing forward applications of their own. Uh, there is one caveat, though, that's a very important distinction of Kava compared to other blockchains. Uh, where most blockchains are open, permissionless networks that anybody can write some code or a smart contract and deploy it on the blockchain, the Kava blockchain actually works as more of like an Apple Store model where there's a vetting process for code. And it's the Kava holders, um, which are, I would say, if I was to try to qualify them, they're like the technical teams at Binance, Huobi, a bunch of the staking infrastructure companies like Figment, uh, Chorus One. They hold all the voting power of, of Kava. And they review kind of any submissions or, or governance proposals for upgrades or new applications or new code to be deployed on on the Kava blockchain. And what this does is it gatekeeps, uh, well, it limits sort of the, the speed of iteration. Uh, what, what you see on Ethereum, people are just forking things, deploying it, code is running kind of all over the place. You have great things happening, but you also have great explosions happening uh, with a lot of the fork projects, just losing a lot of money. DeForce being uh, one of my, one of the more interesting examples where they copied Compound's code, didn't really understand it, deployed it, and then had $25 million drained from, from the contract overnight, like that stuff won't happen on, on Kava because we have this sort of, this very stringent process to get code live. But once it's there, uh, the user, the end user actually has a much better experience. They know any app on Kava is like in, in the Apple store, a very high quality app that's been reviewed by over a hundred different businesses. It's gone through an auditing process. It's gone through, you know, a deep internal uh, testing process with the the teams, and it's run on a test net. And you can't say the same of kind of applications that are launched elsewhere. So it's a view that we've taken with this blockchain that I think makes us very unique, and it does make iterating a bit slower. But what it means is what does get developed is going to be of much higher quality and the end users can kind of trust it for reliability. Understood. So is that to be able to serve uh, a newbie or is that to be able to serve a more sophisticated user? Who do you think is going to appreciate that offering? Or is it, is it not that specific? It's just because you think this is as a, as a more of a kind of pl platformed approach, the right thing to do long term. Yeah, great. It's a that's a great question. So there's a few reasons. Um, the first is we want to uh, have this. We're taking this curated approach. One because we want to make sure that we know how all the code on Kava 
interacts with each other and be very confident of that. So on the Ethereum ecosystem, because it's just an open smart contracting platform, you have all these weird attack vectors like flash loans and you know, circular transactions and all sorts of stuff happening there. And we can catch that all before it goes live. And that is something that I think is, is very important. Like there's not going to be any sort of you know, eyebrow raising code that lives on the blockchain that could be used for malicious purposes on the Kava. Everything is just very purpose specific. And it, it's been tested to interact with all the other pieces that live there. So that, that's actually a big reason why, why we've taken this approach, just because it, it gives more safety to both the blockchain and the applications that live on it. And that ultimately is just a much better and safer user experience for, for people who are putting you know, a lot of money at, at stake when it comes to financial applications like these. The, the second thing that we, um, that we focus on is actually integration. So you mentioned earlier, kind of DeFi is very limited to who's using it today. Uh, I saw a Kraken report that said out of all their top traders, 93% uh, still haven't used DeFi at all, uh, which is that, that, that was both surprising and not surprising. Where we see the future is really making things accessible to first retail and crypto, but then the, the broader retail uh, sector of just you know, people who invest in things, people who you know, spend money. And how we see that evolution is today, we need to have a very high quality application and a high quality uh, experience. So when a developer at a centralized platform wants to offer it up and make it more accessible, not just to the technical audience who can custody their own funds that are the diehard cryptos, that 7%, but they wanna open up to the other 93% of crypto traders, uh, that they know that if their, their neck is not gonna be on the line, they're actually gonna be giving their users value if they integrate a Kava product. And that's why we've seen kind of, despite us not being on the blockchain that people know, Ethereum, and that they know how to work with, uh, they're going above and beyond at Binance and places like BitMEX. They're directly integrating Kava and now hard, the money market, uh, thing and giving that uh, to their users in like a simple, seamless one click. You know, I, I can put my money in in one click. They don't ever have to take their funds off an exchange. It's a much nicer user experience. So when we like have optimized everything that we've done here at Kava in terms of quality, what that really means, as well as like we're focused on enterprise uh, folks like that. We want to have these integrations, and ideally, we want to have them in even more broader fintech apps like your Robin Hoods or whatever else, so that a user can just say, oh yeah, I want to earn 10, 15, 20% on my stable coin, click one button, and it's just sort of done within the app. And it's, uh, it's a much more risky proposition for these centralized parties to, to do something with an unproven uh, you know, DeFi app on Ethereum, or even some of the larger ones, like there's still just a lot of risk given the nature of solidity and all the attack vectors, where with Kava, they can be quite certain kind of what's going on on the blockchain. And they're, they're kind of in control. They're still in the driver's seat despite working with a DeFi platform. Yeah, and I think it's smart in that, you know, I'm a big believer that FinTech, classic FinTech, if we can call it that, will serve as distribution channels for DeFi and therefore you know, having a, uh, I don't want to use an intermediary as a term, but like a bridge that allows for 
the removal of risk and I guess the testing of product in a controlled environment rather than just just out in the wild, I can see why that might appeal more to a typical fintech startup. So specifically, um, what kind of attack vectors do you remove from this process? Is it Oracle attacks? Is it, you know, flash loans and what can be done with flash loans? Is it just rug pulls? (laughs) I mean, we've really addressed most of those things. Um, Of course, there's there's always going to be that 0.0001% attack that's just so hard to foresee, despite what audits and precautions you've taken. But just to put some things into context, on Kava, uh, you don't have to hold the Kava token to send other coins that exist on Kava, like our stable coin. On Ethereum, you need to hold ETH and you need to pay some gas fees if you're going to uh, you know, send and receive DAI, for example. That's actually a horrible user experience for anyone outside of crypto, but they might want to hold a stable coin. Um, and it's not just DAI, it's USDC, it's USDT. And on Kava, because we've designed it as a proof of stake system, we've actually been able to have, uh, well, for we, we have something called fee-less transactions where people don't have to pay fees and they get put into a queue. And if you, you want uh, priority to get transactions through faster, um, I mean, it normally gets processed very quickly, but there are occasions where people write bots and sort of spam the chain to do a, a particular activity. If you just put a very, very small fee, uh, that transaction kind of goes to the top of the line, a validator takes it and, and processes it for you within you know a few seconds. Um, but what's important on Kava is because we've designed it this way, you actually can pay your fee in any token you you hold. So you, if it's you know USDX or if it's Kava, if it's hard, it's BNB, you can pay within the currency that you hold, which makes the user experience just so much nicer. You don't have to worry about calculating or like managing uh, you know, your portfolio risk across multiple assets, particularly maybe assets that you don't even want exposure to. Um, I think for stable coins and payments, just as a use case, that's particularly important. Uh, it makes it much more akin to a PayPal transfer or Venmo or Zelle if you don't have to think about holding some weird speculative crypto asset, you could just hold a stable coin and transact with that. And then the last point, um, I mean, there's many here, but in terms of attack vectors with flash loans and kind of batching transactions and uh, doing that, because we didn't design everything in Solidity, we've designed everything in Golang, which is a much more verifiable language. We can actually have very discrete modules that only accept very specific inputs from users. And we can kind of test and be quite certain that the outputs from those contracts do exactly what we intend them to do and nothing else, um, which includes interact with other contracts or other modules or you know other applications that live on our blockchain. So one of the things that, like I said, that we were protecting against is, well, I think flash loans have a great use in terms of making markets efficient. It's very important to be able to understand kind of the scope of where they can impact things. And on Kava, we can do exactly that. So we can introduce them in the right places and only those places. And that's really something that you only can do if you built an environment kind of with these things in mind. Interesting. I mean, I, I one shameless plug. Um, you should definitely speak to Agoric if you haven't. Um, we had Marques Miller on uh, the show a while back. 
And, um, you know, they're doing interesting things with Cosmos and IBC. And I know there's that linkage there with Cosmos to allow for greater complexity and uh, at the contracting layer. Um, yeah, Mark, Mark's brilliant. I have a lot of friends over there and um, they're definitely building some very interesting things for, for Cosmos. So I guess like a, a big question is directionally, I think the approach makes a lot of sense, certainly as an alternative, right? I know some people, some purists just just won't like it, but the reality is you, you need a universe of options if we're to onboard yeah, not just more people in crypto, but like beyond the existing uh, crypto holder, user, trader, speculator, whatever it is. And I, I think this makes total sense. Um, what is, do, do you have a house view currently on compliance and KYC and AML yet? Well, as a DeFi platform, well, actually as our company, all we really do is we run some Twitter handles for our, our different projects and we ship code to GitHub and what goes live on the blockchain. So unlike other companies, we actually run no nodes on our own network. Uh, we have no control over our own network. We do a lot of Kava and we, you know, we can influence votes to, to some degree, but everything has to get voted on by the greater group of Kava holders um, into a network upgrade. So in terms of compliance, because we don't have control there, we don't really have to comply with much. It's, it's not even in our hands and we can't really be held responsible for it because of that. Uh, there are things like we do run some of the, the apps on our website. There's other options. There's third-party developers like Cosmos Station and Frontier. And, um, you know, of course, the centralized exchanges I, I mentioned that offer up direct integrations to our products as well. But because we do operate interfaces, we don't really collect... Uh, kind of any data, we, we make sure that we're compliant in kind of any anything that our website is doing and what people might be doing within the applications. But that's kind of where the buck stops. Uh, we, we just make sure that we're, we're kind of uh, buttoned up in terms of GDPR and like all those things, but there isn't really a whole lot in terms of KYC and AML because we're, we're actually not really, those aren't really our customers. We're not actually in control of their funds. They're, they're in the driver's seat the whole time. So we can't take the view that we need to be uh, responsible for for KYC and, and AML. Interesting. So it's non-custodial, and, and also you don't have the you're not active in the node infrastructure, and so uh, you know, certain, especially in the U.S. context, that r removes a lot of the burden, as you, as you say. Yeah, and, and as I as I was saying, with any type of code that we even suggest the network to adopt. It's the nodes that ultimately say like yes or no, and then they run it on their servers. We don't have control over what they run. I wouldn't say we necessarily had the the very specific foresight to operate in this way, but in terms of regulation within the U.S., it is very beneficial. It turns out that we've designed a system uh, in this way and kind of have taken these stances. Yeah, well, let, let's put it down to genius, right? I mean, I hate to just put things down to... Or luck. <laughs> yeah, no, let, let's just say it was genius. That's the easiest way. Look, Brian, it's it great to talk to you. As I said, I think it's a really interesting, novel alternative. I can see it definitely has a place in the ecosystem. Um, and I can see it also onboarding 
more people into the space, enabling the onboarding of more people into the space. So um, I'm, I'm looking forward to watching how how the space evolves. Is there anything specifically that you would like to mention to listeners about how they can get involved in various things or uh, yeah, how, how can they follow you? How can they get involved in the project somehow? So I would highly recommend anyone who is currently hodling some BTC uh, to earn a yield off of that. You should plop it into the hard money market. Uh, that's It's currently offering about 20% APY in a non-custodial fashion. Uh, so if you are so inclined uh, to put something on a trust wallet or ledger and use a DeFi app, uh, I would highly recommend doing that. Or with stable coins, currently BUSD is getting about 28% uh, on our application. So if you're trying to earn more money, just put any assets that you're holding into a money market and you'll earn more. So that, that would be the first and then if you find what we're doing interesting uh, and you want to develop on Kava or you just want to get in touch or you want to speak about um, anything in particular, like an integration of some sort, uh, please feel free to reach out. Uh, our general email is hello at kava.io, but we also have a Telegram community, which is t.me slash Kava Labs. Brian, thanks again for coming on and good luck. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.